Last week we found ourselves in the middle of Jesus' final public confrontation with the uh, religious leaders. We saw them challenge him on his authority. We saw them try to trap him politically. And then we saw him saw them try to um, trap him theologically as well. Now this is, this is sort of a finish to that section. This is his last public confrontation. And we're looking at the second half of that today. And then after that, he sort of turns his focus back onto the disciples and will spend most of his time with just the disciples preparing them prior to his arrest. And so this is really the end of Jesus' public ministry, his public confrontation. So we come on the tail end of that today. And he's going to deal with um, a scribe who is a little less combative than the scribes we saw last week. And that's a good thing. We're going to see that today. The scribes often debated... um, God's law and tried to find a way to simplify it. According to some of the writings of the scribes from Jesus' time, they cataloged the, the Old Testament law into about 613 different laws. And so they were constantly looking for ways to boil down those commands and to simplify them into a simple principle or a convenient summary of the law. So in order to do that, what they would do is they would divide the law into heavy commands and light commands. So again, heavy commands and light commands, and they did this based on what they believed was their importance, and they would give some value, more value, to certain commands, the heavy commands, and then they would give less value to some of the lighter commands. Now, we would think of that today like, well, some sins are bigger than other sins. right? Now, we know that ultimately sin is sin, and even the simplest sin is enough to condemn us. But... They did something similar to what we do. We sort of put certain sins way up here and other sins, you know, really bad lies are up here and little white lies are down here, right? Well, they kind of did something very similar. But they did it for the purpose of trying to come up with a way to summarize the law so that they could sort of encapsulate the whole entire law in one simple saying and then they could just do that. In one recorded instance, I think I've mentioned before, two famous scribes or teachers from Jesus' day Shimei and Hillel, a very conservative scribe and a very liberal scribe. And there's a writing, basically, which records that an individual came to the two of them and basically said, teach me the whole Torah, the whole Old Testament law, while I'm standing on one leg. In other words, make it so simple that you can do it while I'm just balancing on one leg. So it can't be this real long, drawn-out thing. So Hillel replied, do not, or I'm sorry, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. Everything else in the Torah is commentary. So basically, Hillel answered him saying, well, just treat other people okay. And everything else is just commentary. Almost like fluff, which we know isn't necessarily true. That's the context that we find today in our text, is the debate among scribes as to which are the heavy and which are the light and is there a way to summarize commands so Jesus takes this opportunity and he not only answers the scribes question because he's going to pose that question to them what are the most important law so he's going to take and answer that question but he's also going to issue his final public warning to his public followers so he's going to answer the question and then he's going to give them a final warning 
And then he's going to provide us with a very simple example of genuine faith as a way to wrap it up, which is a perfect way to end his public ministry. So turn to chapter 12 with me. We're starting in verse 28. Let me read it for you. Chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came to him and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, he asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? So Jesus, the context here, has been talking with the scribes. The scribes had confronted him. Remember, they were trying to trap him. They were trying to get him in trouble. And one scribe is sort of off in the distance, and he sort of notices the way Jesus is answering these scribes. And he's rather impressed. Now, this scribe does not appear to be one of those attacking him. He's presented as somebody who is literally on the outside. He's an observer of sorts. Everything in the passage passage suggests that this guy's an honorable scribe. He's not like the rest of the scribes. He genuinely seemed to understand not just the law itself, but the intent of the law. It appears that he approached Jesus out of respect and understanding of the law rather than to trap him, because it says here that he was recognizing that he had answered them well. So his question was very simple to Jesus. He's impressed. He recognizes Jesus as a teacher. He seems to understand that Jesus has a good, solid understanding of the Old Testament. So he approaches Jesus and he asks him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Again, that comes from this debate among the scribes as to which of the laws were important, which ones were not important, which ones do we have to obey, which ones can we ignore? So Jesus answers him, by basically citing two Old Testament commands. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read verses 29 through 31 first. 29 through 31. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than, than these. Now you notice, Jesus last week as we were talking, when the Pharisees came to him, and they questioned him on something, he basically posed a question to them and said, I'll answer you only if you answer me, and they didn't answer him, so he didn't answer them. This scribe, he has no problem answering, because it's an honest question. And again, from an honorable scribe. So Jesus has no concern answering this man here, but again, answers them by quoting two Old Testament commandments. The first one, again, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read that context to you. Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Again, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, right out of the law. The second, Jesus said, is from Leviticus chapter 19. It's very similar. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than than these two. Now, in an interesting twist here, the scribe confirms Jesus' summary of the law, which means he understood the law and the intent as well. Look at verses 32 through 33. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself or himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the reason for this is rather simple. The reason we can summarize all of the Old Testament with these two particular commandments is because love is a motivator. 
Love for God motivates obedience to His commands. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to do some hopping around this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to jump down to verse 11. This is after God had given the law, and you've heard me cite this passage before. After God had poured out his heart, after Moses had revealed to them the Old Testament law, which is a fairly complicated religious system with not only rules and regulations on how to do everything from how to treat your slave to how to treat your wife to what you do with the the poor in the community to how you grow your crops to what kind of tithes you should do to how you should make sacrifices. Oh, I mean, it's just 600 and some odd commandments. So God gets done with that, and you can imagine they're all probably staring up at him with eyes about the size of saucers, overwhelmed with everything, wondering how in the world they're going to remember all this. They couldn't just look it up on their iPhones or their tablets, could they? And God, recognizing that, says to them this, verse 11, For this command which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of your reach. Because I think any one of us would probably be sitting there after 600 and some commands, listening to Moses recite these things for hours, would probably be a little overwhelmed. And God says, but it's not too difficult. It's not out of your reach. Verse 12, it is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it and to, for us and to make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and where? In your heart that you may observe it. See, I have set before you day, or set today before you life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today, and here it is, to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. And here it is again, verse 20, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which your Lord Lord swore to you, to your fathers, or to your, yeah, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give them. So what's, what, what does God do to summarize this? He basically says, love me, abide in me, and you'll have life. God knew they wouldn't be able to, to not only remember, but to obey all 613 of these commands by just simply checking them off every morning when they woke up. God knew they would fail. That's why elsewhere he told Hosea and others, I don't like your sacrifices because they were trying to check them all off. And God says to honor is so much better than the sacrifices. What was supposed to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord turned out to be a stink when they didn't love Him from their heart with all their mind and their soul and their strength. So love for God motivates obedience to His commandments. 
When you love the Lord, you do what He wants you to do. So the reason you can summarize the whole Old Testament law, in fact, the reason you can summarize the New Testament with love the Lord, is because love motivates us to obey and to honor. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, just jump down to verse 8. Peter says, and it's very simple, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sin. So why is it that not only loving the Lord, but loving our neighbor is a way to summarize all that God expects? Well, Peter tells us here, it's because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, it's pretty interesting how when you love someone, you're less inclined to sin against them. Isn't that true? It's a lot less easy to refrain ourselves from sin when we're gritting our teeth and we're angry with someone. That's why we're told to love our enemies. It's difficult. And so the two laws from the Old Testament, love the Lord and love others, summarize everything that God expects. In fact, did you ever wonder when you look at the Ten Commandments... The first few commandments are all about loving the Lord. And what are the rest of the commandments? It's all about your neighbor. Loving them. So even before God said, what he did in the end of Deuteronomy 30 there, when he had given the Ten Commandments, he already built into that, love the Lord and love your neighbor. Without even saying so much. So if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and when we love others... We're less inclined to sin. We're more inclined to honor. And that pleases the Lord. That's why when David sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba and killed his general, why God didn't execute the law and put him to death immediately, because that's what the law called for. Because David, when he confessed, when he repented, you could see genuine love and affection for the Lord in that. And God was honored by that. Look at, um, go back to Mark, if you would. Look at what Jesus does then in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, again, means he understood. Something the other scribes didn't. They were too busy arguing about, well, which law is better than that law, and which law should we obey, and which ones are just purely commentary. When Jesus saw that he, this scribe, had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Now, this is a rather interesting statement here. Notice that Jesus simply says the scribe was close to the kingdom of God. I think that's important. Um, I think I've mentioned before, usually when I study through a a book, I will buy one or two uh, commentaries that are specifically directed at the text. Um, One of them that I've purchased for Mark here is by a guy with the last name France. And he kind of states it this way. It makes him a promising recruit. In other words, Jesus is looking at him saying, you know, you might fit into my club. You're really close because you understand the Old Testament law. So the question is, what was he missing? I think what he was missing was what we can find with Nicodemus. You remember that story, John chapter 3? Jesus was approached by Nicodemus, another religious leader. 
And the question apparently that Nicodemus asked, it's not in the text, we assume it from the context, was how to be saved? What's required? Nicodemus was another um, reputable, honorable religious leader. Genuinely came seeking to understand from Jesus what was required. He may very well have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. It doesn't specifically say that. But based on the rest of Nicodemus' behavior, he likely understood that because Nicodemus was one of the individuals that helped to get Jesus' Jesus's body, went with Joseph of Arimathea to retrieve the body and then to bury him. So there's a certain amount of devotion that Nicodemus shows to Jesus after his death, indicating he's likely saved. But what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? He told him, you must be born again. You must be born by me. And so this scribe here, the reason he was simply close, was it likely wasn't born again yet at this point. My suspicion, however, we don't know much more about this scribe. I wish we did. My suspicion is he ends up much like Nicodemus. Because everything in this text seems to indicate that he was an honorable scribe who understood. And the fact that he understood the Old Testament law, not just to the letter, but also in its intent, I fully expect that we will likely see him in heaven someday. Because to be able to understand the law and to be as intelligent as he was in not just the letter, but the spirit and the intent, I'd be shocked if he wasn't much like Nicodemus. So I guess I wish we knew a little bit more about him. But Jesus himself seems pleased with his answer and just his response. You're close. For all we know, they might have even had a little side conversation at some point. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. You see both of these same principles here in John's letter. 1 John chapter 4. Down in verse 7, we'll start. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfect or perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know that and believe that love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love and observe his commandments. 
For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm not going to count up the number of times the word love appears there, but how important do you think that is? We find both of these principles, loving the Lord and loving our brothers and sisters, so intertwined that John says you can't separate them. You cannot say you love the Lord without loving your neighbor. And loving the Lord is demonstrated in how we love the neighbor and how we carry out our, or how we follow God's commands. And so we find not just Jesus, but even John repeating the need to love both the Lord and our neighbor. So the principle that we see in the Old Testament is one that we see in the New Testament as well. How, how are Christians supposed to be known? What did Jesus say? We are known by what? By our love. Plain and simple. By our love. You know, it's interesting because um, there's a number of different face groups that I belong to, just different things, creation stuff and, and other things. Um, I'm just shocked sometimes at the vitriol among Christians because we disagree or because of this or because of that. And, and sometimes in these forums, you don't know if people are genuinely saved or not. You know, But I think I had mentioned before even the stuff that recently happened at um, Taylor University with when, when Pence um, was doing his commencement speech and the number of people at the school and the parents and others that were all protesting him being there. But boy, some of the vitriol, just people posting in the forum, hey, you know what, yeah, we don't necessarily agree with his politics, but... You know, we love the fact that he's a Christian, he's a godly man, you know, and people would come out with their claws out and just shred them. And I'm thinking, and you're a Taylor graduate or an alum or a parent of a Taylor graduate, and you talk that way and you're tearing somebody to shred? I, I, don't, I don't get that. It's one thing to call out a brother or sister in Christ in love for sin. It's another to act and behave like pagans. We're supposed to be known by our love. Not just our love for the Lord, but love for one another. And again, you don't really know with forums like that, and I don't mean to call out Taylor, because I think you'd find that at any university, much like you'd find it at any church. You know, um, Most church splits don't happen over doctrine. They happen because they can't agree over the color of the carpet, or because the music's too loud, or because of some other crazy thing. Some happen because of doctrine, some happen because of leadership issues. But by four, more, church are just, more churches are destroyed because people just can't get along. They don't get what they want. I have a guy that used to be my boss. He used to be the, the uh, treasurer for their church. And um, some woman in the church had died and had given the church a significant sum of money. I think it was ten dollars or $20,000. And the only thing that she asked was, please replace the carpeting in the church because it was old. That money sat for over 20 years because they could not agree on the color of the carpet. People just could not get along. So that money sat, and they kept that old old carpet for the next 20 years. Um, it was still there when my boss had left the church because they just could not get along and agree on the color of the carpet. It happens. So love. Loving the Lord and loving others, Jesus says, are the two most important commandments because they summarize everything else up. You know, when you think about it this way, folks, um, we love our theology. We think theology is important. Doctrine is important. That's why we teach the way that we do. But you know what? Even a person who's been born again for a day with a love for God and a love for others can fulfill everything that needs to be fulfilled. Do you believe that? doesn't mean they won't sin. But it just means God is 
enjoying their company. Let's move on. Because from here, Jesus actually goes on now and he has a warning for his disciples. And this involves the bigger group, not just the twelve. Because again, he's going to focus on the twelve after he finishes up his public ministry. But he actually warns his disciples to be aware or to be wary of the scribes. If you look at verse 35, Mark chapter 12. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple... How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses, and appearance sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. So after silencing the religious leaders, Jesus now turns his attention to warning about these scribes. They were the scholars, if you remember right. They were also the attorneys, the lawyers. They were the experts in the Old Testament law. Um... However, many, like many Bible scholars today, they didn't always interpret the Bible correctly. And that's why Jesus starts with this. It's interesting, he starts off with their understanding of the Messiah. Because they had it, long, had it wrong, basically. They recognized that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but what they did not recognize, that he would also be the Lord. The Old Testament made it clear that it would be God in the flesh, Emmanuel. But somehow they either rejected that or didn't accept that. So when a descendant of David, Jesus, came in the flesh, they refused to accept him as God in the flesh. And that's really what Jesus tackles here in the first three verses. About, well, if he was simply a descendant of David, why did he refer, why did David refer to him as his Lord? Well, he did because he was God in the flesh. And so he immediately starts with their misinterpretation on probably the critical, the key issue of the Old Testament, which is who the Messiah is. And so he calls them out on that, but he doesn't stay there because he wasn't as concerned with their doctrine as he was with something else, which was this religious facade that was known amongst the Pharisees. So Jesus warns them. In fact, as he looks at him, he says this, Beware of the scribes. In other words, look out. And he tells us why. He says, they like to walk around in long robes. Now the word for robes here is not typically the word for robe meaning clothes. It's fancy clothes. You might say they love to walk around in their fancy pants. It reminds me sometimes within some denominations you'll find that when the pastors get up to preach they put on their scholarly robes with the stripes along the sleeves and the more stripes the more education you have. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong but for me personally it would be a little embarrassing. But they love to walk around in their fancy clothes. Not just reserving those robes for when they were ministering. Now I understand, you go and you do a commencement speech, you put on your robe and your hat, and because you're a doctor and you've earned that. But it would seem a little strange to see that just walking around town, wouldn't it? And that's kind of what he was alluding to here. He says, and they like respectful greetings, a, a better way to... Translate this, if you will, as they desired it, or they wanted it, they expected it. 
So they loved to have these respectful greetings. There was a time when I was sitting in an elder meeting, my mentor, Pastor Richard Krenz, um, at a church back home, Old Baptist Church. We're all sitting in an elder meeting one day, and a couple of the men had made some comments, and I think they referred to um, Pastor Krenz as um, reverend or something like that, which is fairly common in some Baptist circles. And that was a term he didn't really care for. And so he just he spoke up at the meeting. He's like, I don't want to, I don't really prefer that that term. And so somebody asked him, they said, well, what would you prefer? And he's like, well, if you have to refer to me as anything other than Dick, my first name, then a pastor, I guess, is fine. Well, Dave Nutting, the family, the, fa- the father of the family I had been living with, kind of raised his hand. He said, actually, I think we have a much better term. We should probably refer to you as the very most high Reverend Krenz, which brought a smirk to his face and laughter from everybody else. But that was something that Pastor Krenz did not like. He just wanted to be referred to as a humble individual. Didn't need a term of great endearment. Pastor was fine. If you had to call him something, call him pastor. But these particular scribes liked these respectful greetings. Um, It's interesting. I was watching a, a, a video not too long ago where somebody had referred to a Bible scholar who was up on stage. Um... I think without doctor in front of their name. I think referred to the person as Mr. So-and-so. And whoever the scholar was shot back, um, excuse me, I'm a doctor. Please refer to me with proper respect. That's much like these Pharisees here, or these scribes. They liked these fancy greetings. They liked wearing their fancy pants. Verse 39 And they liked the chief seats in the synagogues. Those were the best seats. Those seats in the synagogues, the places of honor that they, or I'm sorry, the places of honor were at the banquets here, but the chief seats are talking about there were the seats usually in the synagogue that were up front and they were turned around to face the people. So you can now imagine they walk into the synagogue, somebody's teaching, and the scribes like to go up and sit in the best seats, but turning around and facing the congregation. Why? So the whole congregation can look at them and recognize, ooh, these are our scribes. You know? In fact, when you want to turn want to do this, turn to James chapter two with me, real quickly. We get a glimpse of this in James chapter two. One of the problems that the church that James was writing to was facing was um, basically had to do with partiality. They were treating the rich and the powerful one way, sort of catering up to them, and the poor they were treating in a negative fashion. And many of them were poor. And so they were treating their own, their own poor friends with less respect than what they were these rich people coming in. And so he describes this in chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in, here it is, fine clothes, they're fancy pants, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing these fancy pants, and say, you sit here in a good place. Those are the seats at the front. What James is describing here are likely scribes because they were meeting in the synagogues. That's where the early church oftentimes met. And so he's basically telling these these Christians, when these wealthy, pompous scribes come in, 
with their gold rings, their fancy clothes, and you give them the best seat, you take them right up front, give them the best seat in the house, you say, sit here at a good place, and then you say, the poor man who comes in, you stand here, or tell you what, I'll give you my footstool. Let me just take my dirty feet off of the seat in front of me, and you can sit right there where I used to have my feet instead. He says in verse 4, You've made, or have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Later on, he goes on, he basically says, these, these people you're catering to, these rich scribes, they hate you. They're not your friend, but look at the way you're treating them. So this picture that Jesus describes about, or describes here about these scribes, loving these fancy clothes and the big seats and the nice place and the best place to sit in the synagogue, and then here, the places of honor at banquets. He's describing these pompous scribes who, he says, devour widows' houses. They take their finances. He says, they do it all for appearance sake with their prayers. They pray out loud in this fancy, powerful language that draws attention to themselves. And Jesus basically says, they'll receive greater condemnation because of it. Does any wonder why Jesus would warn his disciples about that. It's one thing to have bad theology and bad doctrine, which they did. But even worse than that, the example they set was one of simply being religious on the outside. Remember, Jesus elsewhere said that they were experts at setting aside the law for their traditions. Everything they did was for show. Just so they would look good. They weren't genuine. They weren't real. You know, the scribes had one thing to do. And it was to teach. And they were supposed to teach not just by their words, but by their actions as well. And Jesus had a bad taste in his mouth with these scribes. It was all because of their religious facade. Do you think we ever see this in the church today? I see you kind of smirking, smiling. <laughs> if you look at what we refer to as Christianity in general, it's a broad spectrum. We have those denominations that we would clearly say are off the rails. It's all about pomp and circumstance and other things, and there's nothing real about them. And then there are denominations that I would say are doing their best they can to serve the Lord and to represent Him honestly and with their whole heart. And we have the same thing with Christians, right? So clearly we see this within the church. The church is filled with so-called Bible scholars and pastors who promote false doctrine, just like the scribes did. In fact, how many of you have heard of the Jesus Seminar? Or the Search for the Historical Jesus? Yeah. Um, you see it all the time. Any, I can almost guarantee you that when any one of the major networks, whether it's broadcast networks or cable television, when any one of them, the History Channel or anybody else, whenever they present a documentary about Christianity or the life of Christ, I can almost guarantee that the majority of the scholars that they will have quoted and, and you know, talking to them on air and all that are likely from the Jesus Seminar or others who don't believe that 
most of what the Bible says. In fact, um, one of the interesting things about this group called the, the um, Jesus Seminar is they've always been trying to find out who was the real Jesus because what we have here is not the real Jesus. They say he was real, he existed. They don't believe he was the son of God. But they say, well, this is tainted. You really can't trust what this is. And so every year they get together and they have a big conference and they debate which of the words in here are Jesus' words and which are not. Which of the stories in here are accurate and which are not. And sometimes it gets all the way down to parsing an individual verse. That within this verse, this word is what Jesus literally said, but he didn't say the next word. And so they, and they try to determine this. And one of the ways they determine it is there's 70 of them. Kind of, which is interesting considering there were 70 of the Sanhedrin, the wicked leaders in Israel. But there's 70 of them. And what they basically are done is they're given colored beads. There's four colored beads. And they're given these colored beads. And what they'll do is they'll focus on a particular text or a section of the Gospels. And they get there and they debate it then. And then at the very end of the debate, they have to cast their vote. And so what they do is they say, okay, one of the beads, I don't know what the colors are, there's red, blue, white, and yellow or something like that. One of the beads... This is definitely true and it's accurate, meaning this particular text or phrase or whatever. So if they believe that, they will cast that colored bead into the pot. And then another bead represents, no, definitely it's not accurate. Um, so they, if they think, no, nothing in this passage or nothing in this verse is accurate, they would cast that color bead. And then one of them is, well, part of it might be true, part of it might not be, and I think the other bead is, don't know. And so what they do is they all cast their beads and they shake it up dump it out, and how do you suppose they then determine whether that verse is accurate or not? Colored beads. Majority wins. And so these pompous, arrogant fools all think they know better than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Scribes have one job. Bible scholars have one job. It's to teach to accurately preach and teach the word, but it's also to live it out by example. So within the church today, we have Bible scholars and others who don't represent Christ very well, casting colored beads. When I was in seminary, one of the frustrations I had was most of the Old Testament um, material that we had to use was from liberal scholars. So commentaries, um, history books, um, theology books, were all written by, by scholars who didn't believe most of it. You might ask, well, why? I went to a conservative seminary, Grace Theological Seminary. Why is it? The reason is, conservatives couldn't get published. So the best we could do was to rely on liberal stuff, and so we were constantly looking at this stuff and having to go, well, i got to throw out what this guy says here. You know, I can trust him when he says that a clay pot was found in Jericho, but when he says something about, but Jericho wasn't legit, it didn't really happen this way, I have to learn to throw that out. And so we were constantly having to dig through this liberal blather to try to come to the truth about things. And I asked one of my professors about it one time. I said, why do we read this garbage? And he said, because it's all we've got. Now, we live in a day today where it's much easier to publish, and so you have much more conservative material. But much of that fills the church today, folks. We've talked about this before on how much false teaching there is in the church. But again, as Jesus is looking at his followers here, that's only part of his concern because the bigger issue is the examples that they set, the way that they live. In the past, I've mentioned different religious leaders in the Christian church that have fallen. 
Sometimes it's because they simply sinned. Other times it's because it's a facade. I was watching um, a couple of interviews the other day by a, a televangelist who has three personal jets and watching him squirm as he was interviewed about the need for certain things. I won't mention his name, but it's pretty clear when you look at his life behind the veil. It's much more of a facade. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't love Jesus. Maybe he does. But clearly much of what he does is all for show because there's been more than enough investigation done that has shown his life behind the veil. I watched another interview by another one, a famous faith healer, who um, has been shown to be a charlatan, clearly. I mean, he's even been investigated by Congress because of some of his stuff. It's all a facade. Now, at the risk of beating up some of these folks, I think we have to bring it home and think about ourselves. Don't we? Because what Jesus was really telling his disciples here was to be weary and to be warned of the scribes because he was interested in them. Didn't want them to have nothing but a religious facade or a veneer of knowing Christ. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. When you think about the way that the New Testament is arranged, what we have are the Gospels telling us who Jesus Christ is. Then we have the book of Acts telling us about the establishment of God's church and the spread of the Gospel. If you jump to the very end, you've got the book of Revelation, which tells us what to expect in the end times. But everything else between there, folks, is calling us to live out a religious faith. Is it not? They're letters, they're epistles, they're appeals. And one of the best, I think, is Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a couple of passages here. But every one of the epistles is calling us to be real in our faith. To genuinely love the Lord. To love love our brothers and sisters as we would ourselves. But to live out and to be genuine in our faith. To not be like the scribes. Or not be like some of our religious leaders that have demonstrated that it's all a facade. Ephesians chapter 4 starts like this, chapter one, or verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. peace. Jump over to verse 17. So this I say and affirm together in the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reverence to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and in the truth. Jump over to verse chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you 
as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We could go on. The whole book is filled with that. And again, every one of the New Testament epistles is a call to live as Christ would live, to honor God by loving Him and loving one another. Every one of the epistles. It makes up the bulk of our New Testament. So when Jesus warns the disciples to be weary of the scribes, that's what he was getting at. Don't be like the scribes. Don't be all puffed up with your proud ignorance and your pompous religious facade. Don't just look like a Christian, act like it, behave like it, and live it out. It's not enough to simply say that we are Christians. We'll be known by the fact that people look at us and go, you know what, he or she loves the Lord and I can tell. Let's look at the last example, or the last section of our text today, chapter 12, verse 41 and following. This is very simple, we won't spend much time on it. After this, after warning them, he sits down opposite the treasury, verse 41, and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to this treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. So basically, what's happening with this? Well, the contrast really in this is not between rich and poor. He doesn't condemn the rich, he doesn't say that their offering is not valuable. In fact, the rich were supposed to give. They're supposed to give, a, in, the, in the case of the Old Testament, um, 10% was their tithe. They did it multiple times a year, and so in the end, they generally contributed about 28% of their wealth. So he's not chastising the rich here. He's, the rich are doing what they're supposed to do. But then he sees this widow, and he calls out the widow because he says, the rich were giving out of their surplus. They had it to give. But she gave from a different place because she took everything that she had, one cent. In fact, he says, it's what she actually had to live on. It might have purchased her next meal. It might have helped pay her rent. But instead, she put it in the treasury. And Jesus says, because of that, she put in more than everybody else. So, really, what's the contrast here? I think the contrast isn't between the rich and the poor. I think the contrast is between her and the scribes. Many of these rich were probably religious leaders. Much of Israel wasn't rich. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the way that James describes them in the book of James, were the wealthy. doesn't mean there weren't other wealthy, but many of the people that Jesus was probably seeing come in and put in their offerings might have been the religious leaders. But obviously the contrast here that I think Mark is trying to make, remember Mark chooses events for a very specific purpose. And why did he take this little tiny example without much commentary about this woman who gave everything she had and sticks it in right after Jesus chastising the Pharisees and telling the, the, um, his followers, don't be like them. 
be more like this widow. She gave because she loved the Lord. It's plain and simple. She loved the Lord. So what we have today then for us, and I'll wrap it up with this, is it's all pretty simple. We can summarize everything that Jesus has taught all of his disciples in one very simple word, love. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' public ministry ends here with that? Don't have the religious facade. Israel was known for their history of being basically all lip service and nothing else. We've, we studied the book of Judges together, did we not? Where we saw that. They would constantly rebel against the Lord, have to be chastised. God would have to send them a judge to rescue them, and then they'd go and they'd start the whole process all over again. Israel was known for its religious facade. When Jesus went into the temple and basically turned over the tables, it was all a big business, a religious facade. And so the way Jesus ends his public ministry here is to say, don't be like them. Don't just have the facade, but love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength and love others. Now obviously, we know that that's not enough to get somebody saved. It's an expectation of what we do because we are saved. Because again, he told the scribe, you're only close. And as he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so we recognize that. Which means that those who simply say, that's all, re- all that's required is to love the Lord, that's it. You'd have to say, well, yes, in the context of the gospel, you need Christ. In fact, John makes that clear in his three letters. We can't really love the Lord without Christ indwelling us, can we? We can't really truly love one another without Christ indwelling us. So it starts with the commitment to Christ. But then what does God expect? That we love him with our whole heart, soul, and mind and strength. And that we love others as ourselves. 